Hello, 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 and welcome back to Coffee and Crime. I am your host, Jack, and welcome back to the podcast. So, it's been a while since I posted a podcast. That's just because I kind of lost motivation. I'm not going to lie, I did lose a little bit of motivation doing podcasts. But, I just... Also, I was really, really busy with just life, so I didn't get time to sit down and record and do all this stuff to and also pre- prepare because little did I know going into this there's a lot of fucking preparation in, a, in this in a drill decided to go off as I'm recording great but yeah little did I realise going into doing a true crime podcast there's a lot of fucking preparation and that takes a lot of time out of your day and like to sit down to first find a topic or like a case to do then researching the case so much research is goes into doing uh, a true crime podcast and then having to sit down and record it's a lot of preparation that i didn't realize but i'm back now i think i'm gonna try get back into doing them because i do like po- doing podcasts and i love doing a true crime podcast because i fucking love doing I love true crime and I'm I love doing podcasts so it's like I'm combining me two loves but yeah I'm gonna shut up rambling and let's get on to today's case I really apologize about the drilling going on there's just work going on um, where I live we need to get this place soundproofed today's case takes place in Soham in Cambridgeshire and it is about the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Now, before we get into today's podcast, I do want also want to put me a little disclaimer that I don't mean any disrespect to anybody I talk about in today's case. This is just all information that I'm putting, I've put together and researched to bring to a podcast for people to listen to. So now, grab a coffee, sit back. And enjoy the crime. Before we get into today's podcast, I just want to give a little trigger warning. Because this case does mention rape, domestic abuse, coercive control, pedophilia, sexual assault of a child and miscarriage. So, yeah. If that's, like, stuff you don't want to hear about, then just skip past. There will be more cases suited to you in the future. Take care of yourself. Today, the name of this case is actually the Soham murders, and this was a double child murder that happened in Soham, um, in England on the fourth of August two thousand two. The victims were two ten-year-old girls, Holly Marie Wells and Jessica Amy Chapman, who were murdered by um a, re- a local. So Holly and Jessica were they were best friends. Uh, Jessica was born on the fourth of September nineteen ninety one, and Holly was born on the 4th of October 1991 so they were only a, a month apart but they were best based on what I could find about them they were loyal to each other and they were popular and go- and they were really close and they felt sec- they would have felt secure in some where they lived um they were they were in the same class and they went to the same and they weren't like they weren't inseparable they were they mixed well and they were sensible and reliable they were also really popular in skill and the very last photo of holly and jessica is a very well-known photo that most people will know straight away because they would have seen this photo 
if they didn't know the exact name of the case or like or if no names like ring a bell this fo the photo will and it's just it's a picture of them two of holly and jessica in a pair of man united jerseys and this photo was taken on the day that they disappeared and that was the 4th of august 2002 where they were in having a, fam a family barbecue now let's get into the case in a little bit more depth so on the 4th of august 2002 at 11:45 a.m jessica left her house in brook street for a barbecue at holly's house which holly didn't live that far holly lived nearby in red house gardens she told her parents that she was going to give holly a, uh, a necklace engraved with the letter h that she bought for holly while on a holiday in menorca Holly, Jessica and their friend Natalie were playing games on the computer and listened to music for about half an hour before Natalie had to go home. And by quarter past three, they changed into their replica Man United jerseys. One that actually belonged to Holly and the other to her older brother Oliver, who was 12 at the time. And at four minutes past five, Holly's ma took a photo of Holly and Jessica before they ate their dinner uh, with the other guests they returned to the plane upstairs in the house at about 10 past six at about quarter past six holly and jessica decided to go to live without telling anyone to go and buy sweets from a vending machine at the sports center nearby and this would be the last time that holly and jessica were ever seen alive at around 8 p.m nicola wells holly's ma entered holly's bedroom to invite the girls to say goodbye to our guests only to discover both of them were missing she alerted her husband kevin and they searched the house and nearby streets and, and Holly had a half a curfew and after that curfew had went past and Holly didn't come home Nicola decided to ring Jessica's house to see if the girls were there and only to discover that Leslie and Sharon Chapman were also worried because Jessica hadn't come home following frantic efforts by the families to locate their daughters Holly and Jessica were reported missing by their parents at 9.55pm on the 4th of August 2010. Just a little disclaimer, if I do stutter, it's because I'm trying to, I'm reading this whole next part word for word. So, yeah, if I stutter, that's why. So, the police immediately launched an intensive search for the missing children. Over 400 officers were assigned full-time to search for the girls. These officers conducted extensive house-to-house inquiries across Soham. Their efforts to search local terrain were supported by hundreds of local volunteers and later some of the United States Air Force personnel stationed at nearby air bases. To help their public appeals for information, Cambridgeshire Police released a photo that Nicola Wells had taken of the children less than two hours before their disappearance, depicting both girls wearing their Manchester United replica football shorts. A physical description had also been released to the media, describing them as being white, about 4 foot 6 inches, 137 centimetres tall and slim. Chapman was described as being tanned with shoulder length brown hair, Wells was described as being fair and blonde hair. Parents of both girls stated that the daughters had been very wary of talking with strangers, having been warned not to trust people they did not know from early childhood. This was supported by the head teacher of St Andrews Primary School, who told reporters the possible danger from strangers is something we have imposed upon the children from an early age. 
Suspecting the children had been kidnapped, investigators questioned every registered sex offender in Cambridgeshire and neighbouring Lincolnshire. Over 260 registered sex offenders across the UK, including 15 high-risk paedophiles, were also questioned. All were eliminated from the investigation. Police also investigated the possibilities that the girls had arranged to meet someone they had contacted via an internet chat room, but this was soon rolled out. On the 8th of August, so around four days later, CCTV footage of the girls recorded minutes before their disappearance was released to the public. The footage depicted them arriving at the local sports centre at 6.28pm. A televised reconstruction of the children's last known movements was broadcasted nationally on the 10th of August. And both sets of parents granted an interview with Colin Baker on ITV's current affair programme tonight, which was broadcasted on the 12th of August. Other family members and friends of both girls also appealed via the media for their safe return to the children. These appeals for information on the whereabouts of Wells and Chapman had produced over 2,000 phone calls and tips from the public, while all information obtained entered into the investiga- Investigations Homes 2 database. The community held a candlelight vigil on the 7th of August. Shortly after the children's disappearance, Staffordshire Police contacted the investigating officers to report their suspicions that the girls could have been abducted by the same man responsible for an abduction in their jurisdiction in the previous year, in which a six-year-old girl had survived an indecent assault by an abductor who was still at large and whose grand Ford Mondeo had number plates which had been stolen in Peterborough. The person responsible for this abduction and assault is, was also believed to have followed a 12 year old girl in the same area although in this instance his car had been respond- had been fitted with number plates which had been stolen from Nottingham. The same vehicle which had recently been uh, sighted in Glatton, Cambridgeshire. This information was later included in a televised appeal about the children's disappearance on the BBC's Crime Watch but this potential aid failed to bear fruit. I'm actually going to read this next part word for word as well. Um, Several members of the public reported say, have seen the children in the early days of the investigation. Mark took informed investigators that he had driven past the girls on Sand Street in Sound Town Centre at approximately 6.30pm on the 4th of August. His attention was drawn to the replica Man United uh, replica shorts causing to remark to his wife, quote, Lucy, look, there's two little Beckhams over there. A young woman named Karen Greenwood also reported seeing the girls walking arm in arm along College Road about two minutes later. Another woman living nearby in Little Tetford claimed to have seen the two girls whose appearance and clothing matched those of Wells and Chapman's walking past their home the morning after they'd been reported missing. Police also received statements regarding a suspicious white van that had been seen in Salm of the evening of the children's disappearance. Investigators located and seized and seized this vehicle from a caravan park and went Wentworth on the 7th of August. This lead also proved fruitless. On the 12th of August, police launched an appeal to trace the driver of a four of a four door dark green saloon car. A taxi driver stated that he had seen him quote trashing his arms as he struggled with two young girls inside his vehicle as he drove on the A one forty two south of Salm towards Newmarket around the time the girls were last seen. This vehicle was last seen turning into Studlands Park Housing Estate. The following evening, a jogger alerted police to two mounds of recently disturbed earth he had seen at Warren Hill, just outside Newmarket, which he speculated might have been the burial location to the two girls. An overnight examination revealed revealed the, revealed them to be badger sets. One person who claims had spoken to the girls immediately before their disappearance, disappearance was 28-year-old Ian Huntley. 
who informed investigators on the 5th of August he had a brief conversation with both girls on his doorstep the previous afternoon. According to Huntley, the two girls were, were quote, happy as Larry he had him briefly inquired whether his partner, Maxine Carr, had been successful in a recent application for a full-time teaching assistant position at their skill. Now, keep Maxine Carr's name in mind because she comes back into the case a little bit later, so keep Maxine's name in mind. When he had replied, Carr had not got the job, one of the girls said, quote, Tell her I'm sorry, they both, wa- wa- they both walked along College Street towards a bridge leading towards Clay Street. Police were suspicious of Huntley's account. A single police officer searched his house on the 5th of August with no incriminating evidence discovered. But the officer noted items of clothing on the washing line despite the fact that it had been raining. In reference to the evidence intensive cleaning of the house's interior, Huntley said, quote, Excuse the dining room, we've had a flood. This officer was unconvinced by Huntley's claims and suspicious of his agitated demeanour. Huntley removed a strong... Uh, Huntley remained a strong suspect. On the 6th of August, Huntley drove from Salem to Grimsby to pick up Carr shortly before the two returned to college clothes. A neighbour of Carr's mother named Maria Clift saw the couple standing at the rear of the vehicle with the boot open. According to Clift, a quote, pale, shaken Huntley gazed into the boot for several moments while Carr stood along him. Her head bowed, weeping, when Huntley became aware of Cliff's presence, he abruptly closed the boot. Not gonna lie, that gave me a lot more clarity as to whether Maxine knew about it. Or did he, did he just go to her and just be like, here, say I was, I was a bit year on this day, on such and such day, and she went along with it. But now, judging by this, she knew, she clearly knew what happened, so she did know. She, she knew. But around 13 days after the disappearance, on the 17th of August at about 12.30pm, a 48-year-old gamekeeper named Keith Pryor discovered the bodies of both girls lying side by side in a 5-foot deep irrigation ditch close to a pheasant pen near the perimeter offence of RAF Lake and Heath in Suffolk, more than 10 miles east of Salem. Pryor had noticed what he later described as an unusual and unpleasant smell in the area several days earlier, when returning to the area with two friends on the 17th of August, he had decided to investigate its cause. Walking through an overground verge about 600 yards from a partially tarmacked road, Prior and one of his friends, Adrian Lawrence, discovered the children's bodies. Lawrence immediately went to his girlfriend, Helen Sawyer, and shouted, quote, Don't come any closer, Helen. Get back in the van. Lawrence immediately reported the discoveries to the police. The girls had been missing for 13 days when their bodies were found and their corpses were in an advanced state of decomposition in an apparent effort to destroy forensic evidence. The murderer or murderers had attempted to burn both bodies. No clear footprints were discovered at the crime scene. Despite this, investigators rapidly deduced who the the two victims most likely were and that they had not died where their bodies had been discovered. Numerous years later, determined to belong to Jessica who were discovered on a tree branch close to the location of where the bodies were found. The following day Cambridgeshire Deputy Chief Constable Keith Hodder released a press statement to the media confirming the discovery of the children's bodies adding that the families had been informed of the developments and that although positive formal identification would take several days investigators were quote certain as they possibly could be that the bodies were those of Jessica and Holly. On the 21st of August, the bodies of both girls were identified via t- DNA testing. Nine days later, a public memorial service was held at 
Eli Cathedral for both girls. This service was attended by about 2,000 people, including girls' classmates, teachers and six family li- liaison officers who had provided 24-hour service for both families. The Reverend, the Reverend Tim Ab- Alban Jones ha- officiated the service, saying, quote, would not be the best and most lasting memorial to those these two lovely young girls be a change for the better of how we behave towards each other. Today's service is a small milestone in our shared journey of grief and sorrow. It is our hope that we may perhaps draw a line under one phase of our grieving and look begin to and um, begin to look forward. An online book of condolence attracted more than thirty one thousand messages of grief and sympathy and on the twenty fourth of August football clubs across Britain held a minute silence before games. An inquest into the children's deaths were held at Shire Hall in Cambridge on the 23rd of August 2003. Coroner David Morris testified the bodies of both girls were partially skeletonised and they had no precise cause of death could be determined for them. Morris stated that the most likely cause of death for both girls had been asphyxiation. He also stated that the girls had almost certainly not died at the location where their bodies were discovered and the bodies had been placed there within 24 hours of their deaths. The conclusions were physically supported by an analysis of the shoots of nettles at the crime scene which enabled forensic ecologist and pal- you know, trying best to say this, palynologist Patricia Wilt Witchler, well, I'm shite with names, to estimate that the bodies have been placed at this location almost two weeks before. The funerals for Holly and Jessica were held on consecutive days in September 2002. Both services were held at St Andrew's Parish Church and officiated by Tim Alvin Jones and the girls are buried in graves near to each other to each other in Solomon's Fordham Road Cemetery. Following ceremonies attended by one family and close friends, at the request of both families, the media refrained on reporting on either service. And now here is a lengthy piece of text that I'm just going to read word for word. In the weeks following the disappearance, Huntley reluctantly granted several television interviews to media outlets such as Sky News and the regional BBC News programme. BBC Look East, speaking of the general shock in the local community and his dismay as being the last person to see the children alive. By the second week of the children's disappearance, Huntley had become an unofficial spokesperson for the community of Soham. His explanation for this was that he wants to convey to the media the frustration and despair the community was feeling. In one interview with the Sky News correspondent, Jeremy Thompson, during the second week of the search, he claimed to be holding on to, quote, a glimmer of hope the children would be found safe and well and that he had last seen the girls walking in the direction of the local library. Maxine Carr was also interviewed by press during the second week of the search of the children. In the in this live interview, Carr <coughs> corroborated Huntley's claims to have conversed with the children on their doorstep as she had been bathing before both girls had walked away from the doorstep. Adding, quote, I only wish we had asked them where they were going. If, we are, <coughs> if only we knew what, what we know now, then we could have stopped them or done something about it. When discussing the personalities of the two girls, Carr described Wells as being the quote more feminine of the two, adding that Chapman was quote more of a tomboy, and on that one occasion she had jokingly remarked to, Ch- to Chapman how unlike many of her friends she seldom wore a skirt. To this question, Carr stated that the child had expressed a desire to be a bridesmaid at her own future wedding, adding that Chapman 
had said she would willingly wear a dress for such an such an occasion. Card displayed a thank you card that had been recently given to her by Wells on the last day of the school year, referring to Wells in the past tense. Card stated, quote, she was just lovely, really lovely, before making a direct appeal to the ch- appeal to the children. Quote, just got on the phone and just come home, or if somebody's got them, just let them go. By the second week of the children's disappearance, Huntley had begun to lose weight and displaying visible symptoms of insomnia. Tone officer says, you, you think I've done it? I was the last person to see them before beginning to weep. His erratic behaviour and apparent distress led to him being described antidepressants on the 13th of August. Now, I'm sorry, but let me just get up comfortably. If I was a police officer and I noticed that, I'd be very suspicious of that. And I'd be like making an open, like keep an eye on him. He's a bit suspicious. Um, Especially saying you think I've done it, I was the last person to see them. That's just very... But that's probably now knowing what we know now, playing into it as well. But having participated in the search of the children, Huntley regularly asked police officers questions such as how their investigation was progressing and how long DNA evidence could survive before deteriorating. One of these officers observed three vertical scratches on Huntley's left jaw, each measuring approximately three centimetres, which he claimed to be had recently inflicted by his dog. On the 16th of August, 12 days after the children's disappearance, Huntley and Carr were first questioned by police. Both were questioned for approximately seven hours, each provided witness statements before being placed in a safe house in the village of Hilston. By this date, police had received information from several Grimsey residents who had recognised Huntley in the television interviews he had given and recalled that he had been accused of rape several years earlier. Others said that, contrary to our television claims, Carr had been socialising in Grimsey town centre on the night of the girl's disappearance and was not home and so on as she claimed to the media. The same evening police conducted a, a thorough search of both five college clothes and the grounds of Salm Village College where Huntley worked as a, ser- as a senior caretaker. As the couple remained under police watch at separate locations outside Salm, each realm of Huntley's home had been evidently been recently and meticulously cleaned and with and what was later described as a lemony, as a quote, lemony cleaning fluid. But the search of the home was revealed many items of quote major importance to the investigation. The evidence and artifacts were f- not made public at the time, but the items recovered from the school grounds included items of clothing that the girls had been wearing when last seen, their charred and cut Manchester United uh, shorts were recovered from a bin in a hangar at Huntley's place of work. Fibres recovered from these garments were a precise match to, to re- sample, precise match to samples retrieved from Huntley's body and clothing as well from five college clothes. His fingerprints were recovered from the bin. Huntley's Ford Fiesta was also forensically examined on the 16th of August. This revealed that the car had also been recently extensively cleaned, but traces of a mixture of brick, dusk, chalk and concrete of the same type used to pave the road leading to where the girls' bodies uh, would be discovered were found around the wheel arches and and around the pedals. A cover from the rear seat was missing and the line in the view had been recently removed and replaced with an ill-fitting section of house carpet of household carpet. Having discovered the children's clothes at Sound Village College, police decided to arrest Huntley and Carr. Both were arrested 
on suspicion of abduction and murder at 4.30am on the 17th of August. Investigators had stated on the 7th of August that they had strongly believed the children had been abducted and announced their strong suspicions that both girls had been murdered on this date. During initial questioning, Huntley refused to answer questions and appeared evasive, confused and emotionally detached. Occasionally, Jerrell and Jordan police attempted to question him in an effort to define mental illness. This left police with no option but to refer Huntley to a mental hospital to undergo extensive psychological evaluation. I actually want to just put a really quick trigger warning in for this next part. This part does mention rape. So, yeah, I just want to put a little trigger warning in there before this next part. So... By contrast, Maxine had actually really quickly admitted to detectives that she lied about her whereabouts and her partner's actions on the 4th of August because shortly before she had returned to Salem from Grimsey three days later, Huntley claimed to her on a phone call to have seen the two girls shortly before her disappearance, admitting, quote, the thing is, Maxine, they came in our house. According to Carr, Huntley then informed that that the children had entered their home in order that Wells could stench her nosebleed. He also claimed that Jessica sat on the bed while he helped Holly control her nosebleed before Holly and Jessica left the house. Referencing one of the 1988 rapes they had committed but had earlier claimed to Maxine to have been falsely accused of, Huntley began voicing concerns as to being falsely accused of involvement on this occasion. Also claiming his previous arrest had caused him to suffer a nervous breakdown, she had therefore later agreed to concoct a false story with a partner to support his version of events. After being informed of the discovery of the children's bodies and the evidence of Huntley's guilt, including his fingerprints being recovered from the bin in which the children's clothes had been found, Maxine burst into tears, shouting, quote, No, he can't have been, it can't have been, he hasn't done it. Despite these revelations, Carr initially remained emotionally attached to Huntley and professed her belief in his innocence to both the police and her family. By the 20th of August, investigators had established sufficient physical evidence from Huntley's home, vehicle and Soham Village College to charge him with two counts of murder. He has, he was charged with these offences while detained for observation at Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire. And all preliminary, said that without stuttering, against him were postponed until the conclusion of his mental health assessment. Maxine was also charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice on this date. She was further charged with two counts of assisting an offender on 17th January 2003. While held on remand in Holloway Prison, Carr regularly inquired as to Huntley's welfare and wrote several letters in which she professed her continued love for him. Carr only severed contact with Huntley in December 2002. Right, I need a cup of coffee first. Before I continue on, I know I haven't gotten to how they died yet, but that is coming up in the trial, which the trial is a very lengthy piece to read out because I'm reading all of it from Wikipedia. Because, not gonna lie, I just decided on a whim to do this case, so I was like, I'm reading everything off Wikipedia. I just like impulsively, I was because I was planning on doing a podcast. I was like, what case I do? I was like, I'll just do the Salmon Mortars. So, now we're on to the pre-trial assessments and then we're on to the trial. To determine Huntley's state of mental health, he was detained under Section 48 of the Mental Health Act for almost two months at Rampton Secure Hospital. Here, his mental state was assessed by Christopher Clark, a consultant, forensic 
psychiatrist to determine whether he suffered from any form of mental illness and whether he was mentally competent to stand trial. Clark concluded in October that although psychopathic, Huntley did not suffer from any form of mental or psychotic illnesses. On 8th of October, Huntley was deemed mentally competent to stand trial. Having been declared mentally fit to stand trial, Huntley was faced with a sentence of life imprisonment if a jury could be convinced of his guilt. He was transferred to a segregation unit at Woodhill Prison in Milton Keynes, Buckinghamshire, on the 9th of June 2003. He attempted suicide by taking 29 antidepressants which he had accumulated in a cell. Staff initially feared Huntley might die as a result of this overdose, but he was returned to his prison cell within 48 hours. Huntley was later transferred to London's Belmarsh Prison. At a preliminary hearing at the Old Bailey on 16th June 2003, Huntley pleaded not guilty to the charges of murdering Wells and Chapman, and guilty to the charge both stood accused of. Conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, Carr pleaded not guilty to the charges of attempts to pervert the course of justice and assisting an offender. Now, now's the time to get comfortable. Top up on your coffee if you need to. I'm going to take another sup because this piece of the trial that I'm going to be reading out next is very lengthy. So I need a sip of coffee. Top up if you need. Get ready. And yeah, here we go. The trial of Huntley for the murders of Wells and Chapman opened at the Old Bailey on the 5th of November 2003 before Mr Justice Alan Moses. Huntley was charged with two counts of murder to which he entered a plea of not guilty. Maxine was charged with two counts of assisting an offender and one count of perverting the course of justice. In his opening statement on behalf of the Crown, Prosecutor Richard Latham QC described the last day of the friends' lives and how, by quote, pure chance they had happened to pass by Huntley's home at a time when Carl was not present. Latham contended Huntley had deliberately lured the girls into his home at approximately 6.37pm and that both girls had been murdered shortly thereafter. With self-sight analysis shown, Huntley had switched off Chapman's mobile phone either outside his home or within the grounds of Soham Community College after both girls had been murdered. Latham described how the mobile phone records and eyewitness accounts placed Carr in Grimsey on the evening in question, showing that the statements she had given to police and press had been false. He then outlined the details of how Keith Pryor and his two friends discovered the bodies on the 17th of August at a location Huntley had known for his playing spot and hobby and they were like unlikely to be and where they were unlikely to be discovered. Referencing the likely motive and the cause for the girl's murder and the cause of death of each victim. Latham d- stated that due to the extensive state of decomposition of the bodies, the coroner had been unable to determine the precise cause of death of either child or whether the girls had been sexually assaulted before or after death. Latham stated neither body showed signs of compressive neck injuries, knife wounds, drugging or poisoning and that both girls had most likely died due to asphyxiation. In a reference to Huntley's claims, that the girl's death had been accidental, Latham stated that quote only one person knows what happens after the friends entered his home. He stressed that the cause of death was murder, adding quote, ten year old girls don't just drop dead. In reference to Carr's attempts to prepare the course of justice, Latham stated that quote 
As surely as night follows day, the two had conspired to concoct a false alibi to divert suspicion from Huntley, but warned the jury Carr could only be convicted of, self- of assisting an offender if they believed she had known Huntley had murdered the girls, adding that a motive for pro- providing lies to police with reference to the charge of preventing the course of justice was irrelevant. Over the course of three days, Latham outlined both efforts to uh, of uh, outlined the efforts of both defendants to divert suspicion away from Huntley and Huntley's own effort to destroy all physical and circumstantial evidence linking him to the crime. But despite these efforts, investigators had retrieved enough evidence to show the children had been murdered within his home within approximately twelve hours of their deaths, transported in his vehicle to the location where their bodies were discovered on seventeenth of August. This had included fibre evidence retrieved from Huntley's clothes and carpets which had been a quote precise match to the Manchester United shorts that the girls had been wearing at the time of their disappearance. Latham then closed the statement by again bringing the jury's attention to Huntley's claim that both deaths had been accidental, remarking quote we posed the question to them. He then speculated Huntley's defensive counsel may try and argue that he had been confused. Commenting quote in that case they would have ha- they would have to consider Huntley's behaviour over the fortnight between the girls' disappearance and their bodies being found. Testimony relating to the forensic evidence linking Huntley was heard on the twenty fourth November. On this date, a forensic scientist Helen Davy testified about the biological evidence recovered from the girls' clothing, footwear, and dishcloth discovered in the hangar of Assam Village College on the sixteenth of August. Davy testified she had found minute traces of saliva, of blood and saliva on these objects, but no positive traces of semen. She explained the reason for the lack of any traces of semen being discovered could have been a result of the charred and melted condition of the articles she had inspected. A scene of crime officer, a scene of crime officer also testified, despite Huntley's exhaustive efforts to remove physical evidence of the crime. From his home, a forensic examination had revealed several traces of blood splattering about the hallway and main entrance to the master bedroom. On the 1st of December, Huntley testified before the court in his defence, responding to the questioning by the defence counsel, Stuart Stephen Coward, QC. Huntley admitted both girls had died in his house but denied either death had been intentional. According to Huntley, he, Wells and Chapman had entered his bedroom to stem a mild nosebleed. Wells had been suffering when the girls had walked by his home. The bath was already filled with water and he had been cleaning his dog that afternoon. In the bathroom he had slipped and accidentally knocked Wells into the bath while helping her into the bath while helping her stand her nosebleed, as this unintentional act caused her to drown. As he, quote, panicked and froze, he further claimed Jessica had witnessed this accident and began repeatedly screaming, quote, you pushed her, and that he had accidentally suffocated her while attempting to stifle her screaming, which had preoccupied his attention, as opposed to ensuring that Holly did not drown. By the time the stated panic had had waned, it had been too late to save the lives of either of the children, and his forced coherent memory had been sitting on his vomit stand landing close to Jessica's body. When questioned about his failure to call emergency services and subsequent extensive efforts to destroy evidence and divert suspicion from himself, Huntley insisted he had for- forced become preoccupied with whether the police or public would believe the girl's death had been accidental and he had decided to conceal all evidence of the death as opposed to either notifying police or paramedics. Weep and Huntley had admitted responsibility for both deaths by repeated his insistence that both deaths had been accidental. He cheerfully claimed he did not 
attempt he had not attempt to feign insanity upon his arrest, insisting the trauma of the children's deaths had temporarily erased his men- memory, and in, ba- and in being the presence of police had caused his mind to temporarily seize. On December 3, 2003, Max Zane went into the witness box to testify in our own defence. Re- responding to question from our defence counsel, Michael Hubbard QC, Max Zane briefly discussed our initial acquaintance with Huntley, their subsequent relationship and plans to start a family once they both obtained financial stability. Before Hubbard uh, directed his, his question toward our return to Salem on the 6th of August and on discovering Huntley had recently washed that bedding and evidently cleaned sections of the house. Today's questions, Carr explained that our first impression had been, quote, he Huntley had, quote, had a woman in the house, adding that bedding had been washed shortly before uh, August 4th. Carr further testified to having noted a crack in the enamel of the bathtub, which had not been there when she travelled to Grimsey four days previously. When questioned about why she had helped Huntley in extensively cleaning their home in the days after the children's mora, Carr Carr claimed she'd done so as she'd always been, quote, obsessive about tidiness. Questioned about the efforts she had made to mislead both police and media to divert their su- suspicion from her partner, Carr emphasised she had only lied to the police to the media and, quote, anyone who asks to protect Huntley who had been repeatedly assured her of his innocence and any wrongdoing and his fear of being, quote, fitted up by police for girls' disappearance who... Should they discover the 1998 rape allegations made against him, she further claimed to have referred to Wells and Chapman using past tense merely because she had worked up the children in the past. Carr said that she had tried to persuade Huntley to contact the police and quote be open about his claims to invite the children into his homes to stanch uh, Holly's nosebleed, but he had refused to do so as inviting the children into the home had been a violation of the rules imposed by St Andrew's Primary School. She further explained her focus and therefore had been protecting protect Huntley's job and reputation, adding that she had known of Huntley's guilt she would never attempt to provide him with a false alibi. Stating to our counsel, quote, if for a minute I had known he had murdered either of those girls, I would have been horrified. Concluding his questioning, Hubbard cautioned the jury to not succumb to the temptation of judging Carr's morality, but to consider our state of mind prior to her arrest when considering whether the lies she had told warranted any criminal liability, stating she had, quote, done no wrong on the day of the children's murder and had not returned to Salem until 6th of August 6th. On December 10, 2002, counsel for both prosecutions and defence delivered their closing arguments to the jury. Latham just delivered their closing arguments on behalf of the prosecution by describing Huntley and Cars as, quote, accomplished liars before outlining the prosecution case that both children had to die to satisfy Huntley's, quote, selfish self-interest before Huntley with Cars' support. Had embarked on 12 days of, quote, cynical depression with Carr, only revealing the truth to police after being informed of the discovery of the children's body. Referencing Huntley's likely motive for murders and the claims to the tri- at trial that both deaths had been accidental, Latham stated, quote, We invite you to reject the count of both deaths being accidental as desperate liars. The only way you... For him, we suggest that this whole business in the house had been motivated by something sexual, but whether he had... In, whether he, Whatever he initiated plainly went wrong. Therefore, in this rootless man's mind, both girls had to die in his own selfish self-interest. Referencing Carr's conscious efforts to save the police and media 
alike Leighton stated quote she had a prospect of marriage a baby a nice home and a new start she preferred to do what she could do to make the best of the position she was in that involved at all costs protecting Ian Huntley following the conclusion of the prosecution's closing argument Coward delivered his argument on behalf of the, of the defence he con- uh, conceded his client was guilty of physical responsibility for the girl's actual deaths as Huntley had admitted and therefore deserved punishment but he argued that the prosecution had failed to provide definitive proof that Huntley had intended to murder the children or cause them bodily harm. Coward also contended the the prosecution had failed to provide conclusive evidence to support their claim that Huntley's actual motive for the murder murders had been sexual. Coward concluded his closing argument by requesting a jury deliver a verdict of manslaughter in relation to both deaths. Following the conclusion of both closing arguments, Mr uh, Justice Moses announced the jury will begin their deliberations on 12th of December. This is a quote from the sentencing um, that Justice uh, Alan Moses said to uh, address to Ian. Quote, your tears have never been for them, only for yourself. In your attempts to escape responsibility in your lives and manipulation, you have increased the suffering of two families. There is no greater task for the criminal justice system than to protect the vulnerable. There are few worse crimes than your more of these two young girls. End quote. And now the convictions. The jury deliberated for four days, reaching their verdicts against both defendants. On the 17th of December 2003, they returned a, ma- a, ma- a majority verdict of guilty on two counts of murder against Huntley. He was sentenced to a life imprisonment with a minimum term of imprisonment to be f- uh, imposed by the Lord Chief Justice at a later date. Huntley's face showed no emotion as the verdict was announced. The mothers of both Wells and Chapman burst into tears. Maxine pleaded guilty to the charge of perverting course of justice and not guilty in the charge of assisting an offender. The jury accepted her insistence that she had only lied to the police and the media in order to protect Huntley prior to the arrest because she had believed his claims of innocence. As such, she was not she was found not guilty of assisting an offender. Carr was sentenced to serve three and a half years in prison for perverting the course of justice. Minutes after the convictions, the parents of both girls granted an interview to the media discussing Huntley's mindset. Leslie Chapman stated, quote, I think he was a time bomb waiting to go off, and both of our girls were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I hope the next time I say it, it will be like we saw our daughters, and it will be in a coffin. Sentencing. On 29th of September 2005, High Court, Mr Justice Moses announced that Huntley must remain in prison uh, until he had served the maximum 40 years imprisonment, a term which would not allow parole eligibility until 2042, by which time he would be 68 years old. Set in setting this minimum term of imprisonment, Mr Justice Moses stated, quote, The order I make offers little or no hope to the defendant's eventual release. Huntley avoided eligibility for a whole life tariff and the passing of the Criminal Justice Act 2003 had been one day after his conviction, thus taking effect on 18th of December 2003 and applying solely to murders committed on or after this date. So I just realised I never actually gave like a profile for the two of these, for Maxine and Ian, and normally I actually probably should have, but you see, as I said, this episode isn't really properly constructed because it was just a very last-minute decision to do. Um... So I'm going to give a criminal profile now on both Ian and Maxine. I was actually going to like put record days after I finished filming and then 
like add find somewhere to add it to the end. But that's too much work, so I'm just gonna write that out now. Um Ian Kevin Huntley was born in Grimsey, Lincolnshire on the twenty fourth of January nineteen seventy four. The first of two sons born to Kevin Huntley and his wife Linda. The Huntley family were working class and at the time of that first of the birth of their first child, lodged with Linda's parents in Grimsey following the birth of their second child, Wayne, in August nineteen seventy five, the family moved into a rented property in In okay, I'm gonna try to say this. In the Inman Immenham where Huntley attended school. Huntley was a timid child and something of a mother's boy. In his early years, he frequently threw tantrums in order to get his mother's attention. Childhood friends later remarked of how afraid he was of the stern father. At both primary and secondary school, Huntley was an average scholar. He was uh, regarded as a loner and an oddball and an attention seeker by his peers and became a target for bullies. The bullying of Huntley endured escalated when he entered healing comprehensive school aged 11, resulting in his academic performance waning. His Huntley's parents enrolled their school, their son in, oh, I'm gonna try to say this again, Immenham, comprehensive at age 13. He was again the target of physical and verbal bullying at the school, but did form a few friendships via interesting computer games. Huntley also enjoyed football and was an avid supporter of Manchester United. At the origin of his father, Huntley enjoyed the air training cor- joined the air training corps at age 13. His activities with this youth organisation fueled an interest he had held since childhood for aeroplanes and had seriously considered a future career with the Royal Air Force. Huntley also developed a hobby of plane spotting. Via this hobby, he became familiar with the in in okay, let me try to say this environments of RAF Lake and Heat. Despite having few friends, form, Huntley formed several relationships with, with girls while attending Immenham. I'm getting better saying that. Comprehensive. Each of these girls was at least one year younger than himself. None of these relationships lasted longer than a few weeks. In 1990, Huntley finished his Obtaining five GCSE passes, he chose not to enrol in college but instead committing himself to finding employment. Between 1990 and 1996, Huntley worked in a succession of uh, menial jobs. I'm so bad today for pronouncing stuff, but seldom held any job for long. He also viewed himself as something of a ladies' man and was scrub. Oh, why is there such hard words here? scrupulous about his personal appearance and personal hygiene. In June 1994, Huntley began dating 18-year-old Claire Evans, who he met through his, his employment at a local Heinz factory. After two months of courtship, Huntley proposed to Evans. The couple married a Grimsey Registry office on the 28th of January 1995. The marriage was short-lived due to Huntley's violent temper, which surfaced within days of their marriage. Within a month, Huntley began to regularly sexually assault his wife also subjecting her to indignities such as locking her in the house and cutting her off her hair on one occasion he beat his wife so badly she suffered a miscarriage following several weeks of mistreatment Huntley's wife announced her intention to leave him in an attempt to emotionally blackmail his wife into remaining with him Huntley alternatively found found an illness and later began drooling before a fake epileptic seizure. Neither ploy succeeded. Shortly after the separation, Huntley's wife formed a relationship and later married 
Huntley's younger brother Wayne and he also like Huntley had previous a load of previous offences as well in March 1996 Huntley was charged with burglary in this offence uh, he had a com- accomplice alleged he and accomplice allegedly broke into the house of a neighbour in Grimsey and stole electrical goods jewellery and cash the case reached court but the prosecution offered no evidence resulting in the judge ordering the offence to lie on file between August 1995 and May 1996, Huntley established numerous sexual relationships with teenage girls, all of whom are under the legal age of consent. Three of them are aged 15 and one 13. One of these girls would become pregnant at age 15 and gave birth to a baby girl in 1998. Although reported to police on three occasions, Huntley was not charged for any of these offences, of which girls denied having engaged in sex with Huntley. Each refused to file criminal complaints or accept help from social services. Rumours of Huntley's sexual interest in underage girls soon became community gossip and he was regularly insulted by neighbours and colleagues. As a result, he began rebuffing any offers to socialise with colleagues for fear of being attacked while alone in their company. In 1998, Huntley was arrested on suspicion of raping an 18-year-old woman. He... admitted engaging in sex with the claimant but claimed the act had been consensual he was not charged a month later Huntley was charged and remanded in custody at HM prison walls for another week in another 18 year old for one week after another 18 year old Grimsey woman claimed Huntley beat and raped her while she was walking home from a local nightclub this complainant stated Huntley had threatened to kill her before assaulting her Huntley admitted having sex with this woman but insisted the act had been consensual. The criminal charge was dropped a week later after the Crown Prosecution Court having examined CCTV footage from the nightclub and environment and finding evidence of the two socialising within the nightclub determined insufficient evidence to secure a conviction for this offence. As a result of this complaint, further rumours regarding Huntley's sexual violence became community gossip, resulting in Huntley being fired from his job and forced him to move into his mother's home. He was also forbidden from in- initiating contact with his, da- his baby daughter or his mo- or a mother. In July 1998, police were notified that Huntley had sexually assaulted an 11-year-old girl in the Cleethorpes area in September 1997. He has also threatened to kill the child if she informed her mother. He was never charged with this offence, but subsequently confessed to this attack in April 2007. The final criminal allegation against Huntley prior to the Salmon murders on July 1999. In this instance, a woman was raped and Huntley by this stage and suspected police as be- as being a serial sex offender was interviewed. Huntley supplied a DNA sample to be in- assist in their requirements of care, also providing an alibi to support his claims of innocence. The victim of this assault later said that Huntley had not had not been the per- perpetrator of the assault. This case differs from others as the victim had not identified or named Huntley as or being our assailant. By 2001 Huntley's proved and alleged criminal activities have been reported by Humberside police on ten occasions, onto the social services on, uh, on ten occasions and to the social services on five occasions. And now on to about the motive again. Huntley's motive for killing J- Jessica and Holly is unknown. Minutes to minutes prior to encountering Jessica and Holly, he is known to have an argument with Maxim, and then slamming the phone down. Huntley had allegedly su- suspected Carr of 
conducting affairs throughout their relationship, leading his mother and some police officers to suspect he had killed two girls in a fit of jealous rage. However, a prior to this trial a criminal profile had resulted in his, in his being ruled by an imminent criminal psychology as a quote latent predatory paedophile who had lured Wells and Chapman into his home in a moment of opportunism. The prosecution conducted uh, Huntley's trial there was likely a sexually motive, sexual motive existed for the murders. Testimony from Carr had indicated horse suspicion sexual activity had been occurred in their home in our absence although Huntley had been insistent throughout the relationship that Maxine uh, performed all domestic chores, chores she noted that he had washed the quilt pillowcases and sheets of their, of their bed in their absence. Pathological evidence retrieved from the bodies indicating at least one of the girls had been sub- subjected to a sexual assault either before or after murder was not disclosed to the jury at Huntley's trial. The reason for this decision had been that both bodies had been too extensively decomposed and damaged by the fire to ensure conclusive determination of either the actual cause of death or if either girl had been subjected to a sexual assault. Prosecutors at Huntley's trial uh, contended that he lured the children into his house with a likely sexual motive but investigators found no evidence of premeditation in relation to the murders. At the September 2005 hearing in which the minimum terms Huntley should serve before any parole eligibility was decided Ms. Justice Moses just stated quote there was a likelihood of a sexual motive but there was no evidence of sexual activity and remains no more than a likelihood. Prior to murdering uh, Holly and Jessica Huntley had established an extensive record of consensual and unconsensual activity with females, many of whom have been under the age of consent. He would typically use guile or force to achieve his desires. Before 1992 he had committed many acts of physical and sexual violence against women and children which he, with, which he had been unpunished. The youngest girl Huntley is known to have raped was 12 years, 12 years old with another girl he had attempted to rape being 11. Following his arrest, several former girlfriends and sexual partners, a partner stated that Huntley presented himself as a charming, considerate man in the early stages of a relationship, but become domineering and violent upon having established control. Huntley uh, severely restricted and su- supervised any contact that she had held with her family and our social acquaintances. He would be emotionally blackmailing his partner if any if he detected any signs of our developing resistance to his control or indicating a desire to leave him. According to one columnist, columnist, the fact that Huntley had remained unpunished for days often blatant and continuous acts had increased his confidence and reinforced his dominating misogynistic mindset and refueling his okay I'm trying to say this the best I can Recidivism. 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 Psychologists who have dis- determined Huntley had mentally blocked any attempts to accept the reality of enorm- the enormity of his reactions pertaining to his repeated violence against females in order he might cope with the consequences of his reactions. And now a, like a criminal profile on Maxine. Maxine Carr was born, Maxine Ann Carp. She was born in Grimsley, Lincolnshire on 16th of, all, 16th of February 1977. The second of two daughters born to Alfred Cap and his wife, Shirley. 
The marriage between Cap's parents was marred by frequent arguments following a heated argument in mid-1979. Shirley ordered her husband to leave the household. Shortly thereafter, she and her daughters moved to the village of Kilby. Alfred seldom maintained contact with his wife and children and refused to provide any financial support for his daughters. Cap and her older sister Hayley, uh, uh, born 1967, were largely raised by their mother and their grandparents. I think that was meant to say care. Um, financial support of the daughter, uh, Cara and her were largely raised by their mother and her grandparents. The family regularly experienced financial difficulties, but Shirley would later state that she was she quote spoiled her daughters to the best of her financial ability. As a child and adolescent, Cara was viewed. We ah. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that's meant to be car. Yeah, it's I just noticed. Uh, uh, I just noticed uh, a mistake in the article here in the Wikipedia. Um, <coughs> I need to remember that car. Um, car was viewed by her peers as a timid outcast with few friends. She performed poorly academically, but always aspired to become a teacher. By the time Car entered adolescence, she's was slightly overweight leading to her to become insecure about her physical appearance she was shown by the company of boys as a child but as a teenager craved but seldom received the attention the boys are age occasionally leading to bouts of binge eating in addition to the de- develop uh, in addition to her developing the habit of self-harming by the age of 15 car weighed more than 10 stones resulting in her being bullied by her classmates. In an effort to lose weight, she developed a, f- a habit of forcing herself to vomit after eating. This led her to developing anorexia at 16, where her weight at one stage plummeted to 6 down, and her mother forced her to eat in order to regain weight. In 1993, Cara finished her school and, and having, having obtained no qualifications, she briefly worked alongside her mother in a, mother in a fish processing plant as she considered which which career path she would choose before enrolling at Grimsey Institute of Further and Higher Education, having chosen to study general care. Carr obtained her diploma in 1996, the same year she and her mother moved from Keeley back to Grimsey. Shortly thereafter, she briefly worked as a junior care assistant at a home for the elderly in Grimsey, then returned to work alongside her mother as a labourer at Bluecrest Fish Processing Plant. Several of Carr's colleagues later remarked that he found her to be a distinct a distant and immature figure with few friends or hobbies. To one colleague, Carl would talk incessantly about her dreams of leaving this employment and embarking on a teaching career. By the time Carl had obtained employment at Bluecrest, she garnered sufficient coverage to begin dating men, but none of those relationships lasted more than a few months. Shy and reserved and prone to wearing clothing which concealed her figure when sober, Carl became uh, markedly flirtatious when she hadn't consumed alcohol and is known to have occasionally gained an exhibitionism in, adi- in addition frequently engaged in one night stands with people she encountered in pubs and clubs while Carr resided resided with her mother in Grimsey she unofficially adopted the surname Benson she then later changed her surname to Carr in an apparent effort to in- distance herself from the- her father oh so it wasn't a- an accident it was our actual name is Cap but she changed it to Carr anyway sorry let me yeah. 
So in February 1999, Huntley met 22-year-old Maxine Carr in a Grimsy nightclub. On this occasion, Carr had been drinking with a former boyfriend named Paul Selby when Huntley, a casual acquaintance of Selby, approached the two and initiated a conversation. According to Carr, she was, quote, instantly attracted to Huntley's self-confident and pleasant persona and agreed to begin dating on that same evening. Within four weeks of their acquaintance, she had moved into Huntley's Barton-upon-Humber flat and the couple uh, informed relatives of their eagerness to start the family. Shortly thereafter, the couple moved to a ground floor s- flat in Scunthorpe, where Huntley formally proposed the car in June 1989. Although they were a besotted couple in public, Huntley was very possessive of Carr and is known to have emotionally abused and or physically assaulted her, frequently often culminating in Carr returning to life with her mother before Huntley persuaded them to... For bes- uh, Huntley persuaded her to return to live with him. Furthermore, both Huntley and Carr are known to have conducted affairs throughout their relationship. Noting how Carr became flirtatious when she consumed alcohol, Huntley sought to minimise any opportunity for her to drink or otherwise socialise outside his presence for fear of her cheating on him with other men. When they met, Huntley temporarily worked for an insurance company in Market Racing. He soon found new employment at a finance company in Binbrook, while Carr maintained their employment packing fish at a local processing factory. The couple relocated to East Angelia in early 2001. Shortly shortly thereafter, Huntley obtained employment as a barman in a local pub. By 2001, Huntley had re-established contact with his father who had worked as a skilled ta- caretaker in Littleport near Eloy. He regularly travelled to Cambridgeshire from East Angelia on his days off to help his father, and soon developed aspirations to become a skilled ta- caretaker himself. Via his father, Huntley learned of a skilled caretaker and vacancy in nearby Salm Village College in mid-2001. He applied for uh, he applied for and secured an employment as a senior caretaker in, at the secondary school in September 2001, supervising the work of four other employees. In September 2001, Huntley responded to a job a- advertisement as a senior caretaker in some. He applied for using his alias Ian Nixon. No background check was conducted before or after this job interview, although Huntley lacked extensive experience in form of employment and his application for this position was successful. His employers helped him to get a vacancy of five cl- college clothes and he and Carr moved to Salm in late September. Huntley began working at Salm village college on september t- on uh, now on the 26th of november he worked as a senior caretaker there until his arrest in february 2002 huntley found Carr a part-time job at saint andrew's primary school although she lied about her academic qualifications when applying for this position the employment was initially voluntary work but Carr later became a teaching assistant at the skilled year five class holly and jessica became the two pupils she taught and the boat girls were fond of her in July 2002, Carr applied for a vacant full-time teaching position at St. Andrew's Primary School. She found out on the 23rd of July that her application had been unsuccessful. One of the children express, one of the children to express dismay at this decision was Holly, who had broken down in tears upon learning Carr's application for the teaching, teaching position was unsccessful. Uh, presenting out a hand-drawn card, depicting a smiley face in which she stated, I miss you a lot, thank you. See it around, miss you, love Holly. See it around, skill, 
Missy at Love Holly. By mid 2002, the physical relationship between Huntley and Carr had begun to deteriorate. By Huntley's own later admission, he'd become sexually frustrated and unsuccessfully attempted to persuade a married colleague to date him. On the weekend, Carr visited his mother to Grimsey. At 9.53am on the, 9th of the 4th of August, Huntley attempted to phone Carr, but she did not answer her mobile phone. Carr only replied to his missed call at 6.23pm. This form of the phone call escalated into a heated argument, culminating in Huntley's angrily terminating the phone call after she informed her of her intentions to socialise in Grimsey that evening. Four minutes later, Carr sent Huntley a text message which read, Don't make me feel bad because I'm with my family. Huntley did not reply to this message. And yeah, I'm. This is the last bit I'm reading because I think yeah, it we're gone, gone over an hour now. Jesus. Um. So the aftermath: an orange petaled rose dedicated to the memory of jo- Holly and Jessica was unveiled by representatives of Thoham County Council, uh, Town Council at at the Children Tree Chelsea Flower Show. The inspiration for dedicating a flower, wa- flower to the children's memory came from a poem read aloud at the memorial series at Eli Cathedral on the 30th of August 2002 by the father of uh, Holly titled Psalms Rouse. On the April 3rd, 2004, the three-bedroom house and college clothes in which the murders occurred was, was demolished at the site level with rubble from the property being discarded in various underclothes locations. The site where college five college clothes was once stood is now a vacant patch of grass. Within days of Huntley's sentencing for, uh, he reflected to the media on the prospect of spending the remainder of his life behind bars and his fears for security exclaiming I'm going to rot inside this place I'll rot in here, I know it. I'll spend the rest of my life in here, I'm going to be inside forever and it'll be torture Um. and and the f- Huntley was transferred from Wakefield Prison to oh wait, I've skipped a bit. In the years since in- his incarceration, Huntley had been repeatedly attacked by other inmates. On the fourteenth of September two thousand and five, while an inmate at HM Prison Wakefield, he was scalded with boiling water by convicted spree killer Mark Hobson the injuries Huntley received in his attack being unable to attend his hearing at maximum term in prison was decided following this attack Huntley alleged that the prison authorities had failed in their duty of care towards him and launched a claim for £15,000 in compensation he was reportedly awarded £2,500 of legal aid to pursue this claim Huntley was transferred from Wakefield Prison to Frankland Prison on January 3rd, 2008. Two years later, on 21st of March 2010, he received non-life-threatening injuries to his neck after his throat was slashed by convicted armed Robert Damien Fox. Fox. The injuries Huntley received in this attack required hospital treatment. Huntley again applied for compensation for the injuries he received in this attack, seeking £20,000 in damages. On the fifth, <coughs> on the fifth of December two thousand and six, Huntley attempted to take his own life by taking an overdose of antidepressants he had accumulated in his prison cell. This resulted in his hospitalisation and through his, an, a thorough search of his cell, in which a cassette tape was recovered. The cassette tape kind of contained a very different account of the murders of of Holly and Jessica, that than to which Huntley testified at his trial and what Huntley had believed that is. Wait, I'm going to try to say this. 
posthumous confession, he claims to have confessed to having murdered both girls to, to Maxine prior to the arrest and his plans to confess to authorities to which Huntley alleged Maxine had slapped him in the face and informed him to quote pull himself together. As she did not wish to lose the teaching position she had ye- yearned for all her life, Huntley for the religious car had encouraged him to burn both bodies in an attempt to destroy all forensic gl- evidence linking to the crime it is believed Huntley had agreed to make this recording for a fellow prisoner who would hope to later sell the confession to the media after his release in return for being provided with antidepressants he had used to attempt suicide oh um I never actually knew that so that's a shock um in April 2007 Huntley confessed to having sexually assaulted an 11 year old girl he had dragged into an orchard in 1997. This admission in which Huntley had confessed to having a sexual interest in children while insistent the murder of Holly and Jessica had not been sexually motivated was welcomed by the victim of this sexual assault. Following Huntley's admission of guilt this this victim issued a press statement in which she confessed to feeling a quote a massive sense of relief but concluded this statement with the sentence yet I still feel upset that Huntley was left at large resulting in the death of two innocent children. Maxine was released on probation from HM Prison Foston Hall on May 14, 2004 after serving a total of 20 mon- 21 months in prison uh, including 16 months as she- had she been detained while on remand. She was given a secret identity to protect her from threats of attack from vengeful mem- members of the public. In addition to be- being provided with a new home in an undisclosed location, at the time Carr was one of the former f- of the four former prisoners in the UK to be given a new identity upon release. Carr won an, an injunction on the 24th of February 2005 granting her lifelong anonymity on the grounds that her life would otherwise be in danger. The cost of imposing this order have been reported by different tabloid newspapers as being between £1 million and £50 million. But that's actually true. The only other people in the UK that were given in lifelong anonymity after like, after being released is John Venables, Robert Thompson, Maxine Carr and then someone else I can't remember their name. But yeah, Maxine is protected by lifelong anonymity and no one will ever know who she is or where she is. But at least a dozen women have been falsely identified as being Maxine Carr and either persecuted or physically attacked due to false stories speculating to her whereabouts and their identity which have been printed in tabloid publications. Shortly after her release from prison, Maxine and her family contacted a ties Italian side based publishing company with the view to publishing her autobiography Mirage Publishing initially agreed to Carr's autobiography but withdrew their offer after a feature on BBC Radio News Newcastle prompted scores of complaints from the public so yeah so that's all I have you guys today I hope you enjoy Um, it's a forced podcast back and I promise I will try start uploading regularly again um yeah it's really cold and so this outro is going to be short and sweet because it's freezing it's dark now and yeah so i hope you enjoyed it and i'll see you all next week bye